Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. It was Lionel Messi who said of soccer, if football has taught me anything, it is that you can overcome anything if, and only if, you love something enough. My guest on the podcast today loves football, and despite having a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, at the age of 9, went on to represent his country. My guest on the podcast today is Chris Bright. You're very, very welcome to the show, Chris Bright. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. I wanted to start with your very personal story, which begins with the diagnosis of diabetes at the age of nine. Let's start there. What happened and how did things begin to unfold for you? So yeah, diagnosed in September 1999. And, and thank you very much for you know the warm welcome as well to the show. I'm really glad to be on. I'm diagnosed those many, many years ago now. And I felt at the the time I wouldn't have noticed anything different. I think the key is having people around you that might spot it. And my parents had an experience with type 1 diabetes prior to my diagnosis. So my grandfather had the condition and therefore my mum was quite aware of what to expect. And actually they spotted over probably a period of time some, some changes to me. But actually, probably slightly masked in terms of the symptoms by the fact that I was a very active, very sporty child. So things like the thirst, things like the tiredness, and then obviously the thirst with the toilet side of things with the symptoms. These were kind of natural things that you'd expect with somebody who was sporty and who was active at that time. And then I think it was only maybe when the weight began to maybe dramatically start to change and a little bit unexplained in terms of I was eating quite well and there and you know and starting to twig that actually this is not quite right that there's a quite a bit of weight now being lost and actually appetite hasn't changed too much so then thinking and also at that time I was going through a summer period so actually the summer was probably masking a lot of uh, or showing a lot of those key symptoms uh, for most people, most people are going to be a bit more thirsty in the summer, you know, going to be maybe a little bit more tired if you've been running around in the heat. So it, it kind of made a lot of sense. And as the weather changed and into early September, these things continued. And I think it just led me into a, into a moment where my mum sort of turned around and said, it's time for us to go and have a look, Chris, uh, at what this, as what's going on. I went to a, a local general practitioner, so the GP here in the UK and did the, a urine test, finger prick blood test, and it was pretty apparent pretty quickly that there was something dramatically wrong. I think my blood score was in the 20, around 25 millimoles, I believe. So pretty high ketones in my, in my urine. And from that moment, it, you know, it was, I remember the conversation the nurse had with my mum. It's always, I think it's, you know, you don't physically feel too much in that moment. I think it was way more emotional than you can really imagine, you know seeing my mum get very upset you know you don't see as a as a like an eight nine year old at the time I didn't really see my my mum my get upset for many things so to have her visibly show so much emotion you knew something wasn't was really wrong and from that point uh, I was sort of I was asking questions then and I got upset and you start to think well has my life changed now forever and it, it, it had in that in that moment it, it had it definitely had and just thinking about 
you know, am I going to still be alive? That's probably one of the first questions you have as, a, as an eight-year-old that doesn't really understand, that eight, nine-year-old didn't really understand that where I, where I was going or, or what was going to happen. And, you know, you know, after that, you, you quickly realise that actually I'm going to be okay. I spent a bit of time in the hospital. I spent three or four days in the local hospital where they helped me come to terms with things, helped me teach me about insulin and injections and then what life was going to look like and how to then transition that back to back to living and back at home and then thinking about going back to the, the things that I should be doing as a nine-year-old, you know, school. And the big one for me being football and football was that that other big question, you know, that question, am I still going to be alive? And then the other really big question for me as a, as a nine-year-old was, can I still play football? So when the answers to those were, you know, you're still going to be alive, you're still going to be fine, you've got something else to manage. And then the next question being, yes, you still can play football. Yeah, it was really hard. But those things gave me a little bit of light, I think, to help manage that very starting point. That's fantastic. And the thought that football was so high up on the agenda for you, even at that point, is a lovely thought because it shows how much you were determined that this thing wasn't going to beat you. So what was it like being a teenager? I'll I'll give the game away and say you did become a professional athlete and therefore you must have done extraordinarily well at sport and particularly football as a teenager. But that's the time when for many people with diabetes, it's very challenging because you rebel against it. What was it like for you? It's interesting you say that because actually I, I feel my teenage years were, 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 were that challenge that you described. To begin with, I was on as well, 1999 diagnosis, the old sorts of ways of managing in terms of insulin. So I was on two injections a day, mixture insulin, and that creates a real challenge around driving consistency into how you're able to manage the condition firstly, and then just think about how to even contemplate trying to play sport well. So because of these peaks that you almost, and peaks within the way that the insulin work that you almost couldn't predict. And so one week I would be really fit, ready, sharp, looking good on a pitch. And then the week later, the same things occur. You're injecting at the same time. But for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. And that, I think, then started to make it challenging with my diabetes because there was a frustration that built from that because I'd gone from this kid that showed a lot of talent, ability, and things were, were hampering me. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a level of then almost resentment to what's happened. So I, I begin to struggle slightly from, from where I'd been. and. That feeds into then how you feel as a teenager and more generally in life. And I would say that at that very starting point, I spent five years on mixture insulin. And I would have said maybe it stunted my growth. I was certainly one of the smaller kids within the within my school year. I couldn't get. I mean, my HbA1Cs were never amazing. Uh, they were always probably where you would put in the poor category. And that, obviously, that's going to be a challenge anyway, because, you know, those teenage years, the growth hormones are, are flowing around. I think it then also, which is crucial for then the, the next part of, I suppose, my journey was that it also started to make me hide it because I was in an environment where it was affecting my performance. But I didn't feel I could open up and say it's because of my diabetes, because I didn't feel that the world, if you like, was ready for me to say that. 
and attitudes weren't ready for me to challenge them in a way where I started using a medical condition as, as people would use it as an excuse for a poor performance. I didn't feel I could do that. And that from probably the age of nine to 12 probably was a, was a building to then some challenging attitudes to how I then went about it as a teenager where almost in every circumstance I would choose to as much as I could hide my condition from the people around me because I didn't want judgment. And I'd heard I'd been name called. I'd been openly stigmatized. I'd seen people make jokes. People also wanted to talk about, because I had to do things differently in class as well in terms of snacks and uh, the teachers would ask me different questions. So it singles you out as being different at a time when you really don't want to be different. So for me, that moment and those, as I saw football, it sort of was, was an incredible thing for me because it almost, it gave me something to focus on. I was really positive about, I was good at it. But also in the same time, it taught me some really challenging thoughts and some some things that now I look back on and think, you know, if I wasn't in football, would I have experienced that that stigma or that feeling? So it is as much as I love the sport, there's some really interesting concepts to consider around how the culture of it is has affected me growing up and um, certainly as that teenager and the decisions I made about looking after myself. That sounds like a really challenging time. And I'm sure that you would resonate with lots of people who've got a chronic illness, whether it's diabetes or not, where they are different somehow and they're taking different medications and having different diets and doing all those kind of things. But somehow something seems to work for some people. And I'm wondering what it was that worked for you. Was it that your coaches were very sympathetic? Was it your family? Was it something else? What was it that allowed you to develop the resilience that you clearly have? I think having a close-knit family, I think the support of my mum and dad, who encouraged me to continue to follow the passion of my football and what I loved doing. And also, I think I was so determined. I almost carried my diabetes as a chip on my shoulder. I carried it around as something which... I was so frustrated at the way that people looked at me and and changed their views about me or made comments about me that I almost, with the support of my mom and dad, you know, these conversations happen behind closed doors, but we were so, I suppose, built our own wall up as a, as a family. And it was kind of, nothing gets in this, in this tight knit group, you know, the, the words, they don't hurt us here. And, and I'd kind of then, I'd take that buildup of strength that we had within within our own family unit. And I would take that outside with me and it would make me want to prove everybody wrong. And that is something that I probably still carry now. Diagnosed over 20 years ago now, I'm very, very keen to continue to show people in different ways why type 1 diabetes isn't a barrier to achieving what you would like to achieve in life. And I think from my perspective, that very early part where I was subjected to diabetes-related stigma, the comments, as much as it was negative, it built me very, very resilient in the way that then I, I went on to tackle sport as well, because sport is quite, um, in a similar way, quite critical. So you need to be able to deal with the challenges of people's attitudes and also people's opinions of you, because sport is very subjective in the way that people will 
will happily throw opinions about who you are, what you do. And if you're not ready for that, then that can eat you up as well. So I was already ready for that because people were judging me and people were talking about me from a, it being different and, and not conforming because of my diabetes from a very early age. But I didn't quite realize that it had done that because obviously at the start I was, you know, I was finding it so difficult. I think only in later years have I realized what that period of my life actually built within me that it actually made me ready for the world, that, that period of, of challenge and, and people's attitudes. Well, I think the first thing to say to you, Chris, is you've got nothing to prove, absolutely nothing to prove. You've done some amazing things. So let's talk about the thing that you love the most. Talk about football and how you ended up representing your country. Yeah, so the, that is the absolute pinnacle, the, the big love in my life, the thing that's always been there before diabetes and after diabetes, as well as my family, probably the only thing that's been there for that same amount of time. I don't know where to start. I mean, you play it as a child, you find a love for it. And I always loved doing things differently. So quite creatively, I liked scoring goals. I liked trying to make goals happen. I liked the skills, the tricks, the, the flicks, the things that entertain people, the things that make people go, wow, that looks cool. That was me. I would always practice the tricks, the skills and, the, um, and those sorts of things away from the pitch. And it was quite evident early on that I had, a, I suppose, a, maybe some sort of natural ability to play the game. I was, as a child, starting in goal. I remember as a little six, seven-year-old getting the ball in goal and dribbling around half a team and then putting it in the, in the goal. And you think, well, that's something that we want to work on. And my dad and mum always encouraged that. So I, from then on, you just, I know, and I mentioned about my diabetes causing me a few problems to begin with in terms of my, the way that I managed my condition to play and perform. So I think for a few years, I found it difficult. Then as, as we got onto a new regime with my diabetes, it's called basal bolus. You're probably well aware of it. And things became a bit more adaptable. And this helped me massively in terms of then the approach of sport. So actually around the age of 14, 15, things took a really big turn in the way that I was then able to perform. So I started getting into local regional teams. I was captain in regional teams. I was leading school teams, getting trials for professional football clubs in, I think at the time, maybe like second tier of English football, sort of that level. I was getting opportunities, which I hadn't had the opportunities for, for a number of years. So all of a sudden things become, you know, you start to think I, I might be, I might get somewhere with this. And then I, I sort of continued playing semi-professionally for eight or nine years. So paid to play the game for probably, yeah, for the last 10 years, I'd say I've been paid to play the game. Played for my university's first team, you know, won a number of trophies. And then I was just playing locally for a club. Again, in that, that sort of, that bracket of semi-professional football and I had the opportunity then to move into futsal and futsal is an emerging sport in some areas of the world and then a really developed sport in others and in the UK it's developing really quickly and I think it was just a match for me it was just it felt so natural it was like being back where I'd always played my my sport as a kid I'd always been in the little cage environments on the little playgrounds trying to dribble past players and, and futsal felt exactly the same as that. And this was 2013, 2014. And I had the opportunity then to get involved in the sport, played a number of games in the top league in England. I was player of the season for my club and very 
quickly sort of fast track from somebody that had just sort of been introduced to the sport to somebody that took to it really well and very, I suppose, very quickly established themselves in, in that, that squad, in that club that I was at, and then had the opportunity to go on and be sort of picked to play for the national team. And yeah, since 2016, I've been representing the Wales national futsal squad. So I've had the opportunity to play across Europe in different countries. And it's been a phenomenal opportunity to do the thing I love to do, to be recognised at that level and have that opportunity is, is incredibly special. And I think it's been made more special by the fact of what I go through every single day with the chronic health condition that I live with. To overcome that, to then be recognised in that way and, and be a part of your peers that, at that level and to then play against others of other countries at that level and to be seen as no different, to have that opportunity and to play in a, play in a way that almost shows that type 1 diabetes isn't a barrier has been really, really special to me and something that I'm always going to look back on really, really fondly. And I can see why. And the wonderful thing about that story, Chris, is that you do not define yourself by your diabetes. You are a football player who happens to have diabetes as opposed to someone with diabetes who happens to play football. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think definitely fair. And I think my life would suggest that because I, for a very long time, would keep diabetes quite quiet and, you know, for, for sometimes quite good reason, you know, slightly concerned that coaches or managers may not fully understand the condition and therefore may not understand it in terms of picking players when it's nip and tuck for a certain position, when it could go either way. The, the guy that's got diabetes versus the guy that hasn't, it could be seen as quite a, a slightly easier choice to make. And I think because of that, I was never, ever defined by what I live with. I was always defined by what I was doing and what I wanted to do with my life. And diabetes would always just come along for the ride with me. And then I think in the, in the, in the years that have followed my, I suppose, inclusion within the national team squad in futsal, I've tried to slightly readdress that balance a little bit and incorporate my diabetes a little bit more into my identity because I think it's important now that I talk about it and I share that story and I talk about what it's been like and to raise awareness and to support others that may be going through something similar or may go through something similar in the future. Yeah, and that's a great segue into the next part of our conversation, which is really about what you are able to do with the insight that you've got and how things have worked out for you and helping other people to actually come to terms with this diagnosis. So where to from here and what have you been doing in that regard? Yeah, so there's been a lot of work in the last few years in terms of what we've been up to. Myself as an individual, I think I made the decision once I'd climbed my mountaintop of representing the Wales national team that I'd always wanted to help people with diabetes. And I think that's a part of the condition that does something good for you and teaches you well about being empathetic towards people because you know of your struggles. So therefore you're accepting of other people's struggles. So I'd always had this about me and I wanted to put that into practice. And I felt now that maybe with the recognition of playing for the national team, with that opportunity that comes with that sometimes, 
that I maybe had a space now to talk and share what it had been like and to help others. And this is when I established the Diabetes Football Community in 2017 to provide a peer support community and a space for people to interact, seek advice, gain inspiration, and more impo- most importantly of all of it, to come together and realize that they're not alone. I'd always felt very, very alone in terms of being the person with type 1 diabetes that played football. That's quite rare in itself. But actually now by creating this community, we are encouraging sport and activity for diabetes, and especially within football. And this goes against much of the stigma and the stereotype that is out there that surrounds the condition. So for me, it's been an incredibly important step forward. The project has done amazingly well in a short space of time. You know, we've spoken to people across the world. You know, even this podcast, Moise, we're talking from across the world. So it means that the it means that the story of what we're doing is reaching and supporting, and most importantly of anything, is, is making a difference. And I have seen people that have come into contact with the project, maybe played in one of our teams or maybe been involved in one of our conferences or seen videos that we've created. I, I've seen them actually put across that their HbA1c, the measure of their diabetes control, has improved. And the reason it's improved is because of their interaction with the diabetes football community and not necessarily with their healthcare team. So for me, it's about now demonstrating why this community and why peer support is so imperative now in a healthcare model in the future and why our project has done so well now to have helped people. So, And that's really led me in some of the decisions that I've then made. So I've written recently a research project to provide academic foundations for this because I want to demonstrate why the community has worked, why peer support is so important, because I, I think we've undervalued its it's successism, really, really, and it's value to healthcare in the last few years. And I really want us to start thinking about how it, how it extends into a formal healthcare model and how we, how we utilize it for the future. We've created a platform and a blueprint that has been so powerful for so many people. But the success of that shouldn't be just for the people that I've supported in diabetes and football, we should be thinking wider. We should be thinking, how does this translate to other conditions? How does it translate to other sports? How does it translate to other interests? And the reason that it's successful is because there's a whole lot of passion aside from the chronic health condition. So incorporating that, now making people aware of that and talking about how this project has been so special is now a massive part of what I want to do and what, what how I want us to grow in the future. And we've, we've done some amazing things and it's been a really, really important part of my life to now give back to all of those challenges that I'd faced, all of the, the stigma, the stereotypes that I'd felt. I now get an opportunity to try and right some of those wrongs and to try and not replace them, but almost take them on, head on, and challenge them and challenge those that continue to perpetuate those those challenges for, for people with chronic health conditions and people with type 1 diabetes more specifically. I think you're absolutely right, Chris, and you're on the money. And I speak as an NHS trained GP now working in Australia, and I've ex- I completely agree with you. 
For us as doctors, it's really spending a small amount of time with people at the time that, you know, you're, you're trying to work, you know, trying to advise, if you want to call it that, about their HbA1c and about their cholesterol and their blood pressure. The reality is that these are people who are living with that condition and no one is better placed to advise, support, guide people than patients like them, patients with that particular condition. And I believe, I firmly believe, you are right, that technology is going to allow us to connect people like you with all those people who need that support. And, you, and you're also right, it's not just about diabetes, it's about Crohn's, it's about asthma, it's about a whole bunch of other things that we haven't even talked about today. I think that this is the way healthcare is going. And I think that I would certainly be encouraging you to continue on that path. I mean, I love this idea of the diabetes football community because it's so tangible, but it's the national sport. It's a big part of our community. And there's a way to link it to something that is an important message. In Australia, it would be Aussie rules football or cricket, probably. And cricket is, is also being used in that way, whether it's breast cancer awareness, prostate cancer awareness, whatever it happens to be. So in brass tacks terms, where do you think this is going to go in the next five years? I think in the next five years, judging on the level of growth we've seen in just four years, I think it's only going to expand into areas that I always wake up on this project and I always think, you know, we've done some amazing things, but there is always something as amazing as what we've done just around the corner. And as much as I try and plan our, our future and our strategy out, there, this area is so underdeveloped in terms of peer support projects like ours that have had an impact and really focused on an interest, I actually don't know if there is another one maybe as established as ours globally that does this. So for me, I think what I would love to be able to do and see within these next five years is obviously the growth of our own project. We, we continue to do great work around conferences, building teams, participation opportunities for those with the condition and inspiring those across the world as well. So as much as we've done it in the UK, we inspired a team within the Republic of Ireland as well by supporting them. We continue to support a European tournament and the growth around the European futsal championships for people with diabetes, which is an incredible showcase piece for the people with the condition and also just demonstrates how amazing people are and able to, to perform at that level for their nations. And in the same way, continue to inspire those projects and continue to produce them. But for me, the bigger picture is in the next five years, I want to see us grow. I want to see us establish ourselves as a leader. But as, as a role as a leader, I always think is, is how you pass that on to others. And I really want us to be able to utilize what we've done as a blueprint, as a support mechanism for other people to take the idea from and hopefully establish other communities, supporting other conditions, supporting other sports, other interests, whatever it may be, to make a real dent in, in how we support people with chronic illness. Because I think there are points in our lives in certain ages where people with chronic illness might feel well supported. But actually, I feel that those in younger ages, especially, so maybe young adults, for example, and children, they get probably a really tough 
tough, I, I suppose, a tough situation because healthcare hasn't really been designed to support chronic illness in the young. And it's such, it's almost expected that chronic illness is later in life. So I think we, we need to think a little bit about that. And I think this project has really demonstrated an area that's inspired younger people with chronic illness. And I hope that we can demonstrate that and, and showcase and potentially create a blueprint for, for other areas in the future. Chris Bright, yours is an inspiring story because you are certainly not defined by any condition. You talk about all these chronic illnesses and here you are, you've been played football for Wales. I believe your next match is going to be the toughest one of all because that's the global, it's on a global stage. And you are talking about improving outcomes in healthcare. And that is not an easy thing to do. I can't think of anybody better qualified than you to lead us through that phase. And I very much look forward to hearing of your success. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for you know, the opportunity to come and share it with you as well. And uh, it's going to be a tough battle. I'm fully accepting of that. But it's one that Judging on my life and what I've been up against already, it's one that I'm going to, you know, take on and, and absolutely relish. And it's not, you know, it's not about taking it on and telling people they're wrong. It's about taking people with, with you on a journey. And I think the diabetes football community is always, from from the get go, I was always wanting to take people on a journey. And this is the same. I just need to get healthcare professionals on my side. Let's go on a journey together. And let's see where we can come out in the end because I'm, you know, they do incredible work. There is no doubt in that we couldn't do the things we do without our healthcare professionals. But I think in the future, working more closely together, we can achieve greater outcomes by being together. We're right there with you, Chris. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.